0: Hi everyone and welcome to this latest instalment of the UK and a Changing Europe's Brexit and Beyond podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Professor Timothy Ash. Timothy is Professor of European Studies at Oxford University and Isaiah Berlin Professorial Fellow at St. Anthony's College where back in the depths of time we were colleagues. Tim, welcome. Great to be with you. I mean you've written about so much in your career and you're doing so much now that there's there's an awful lot to get through. But let's start with today and what you're doing at the moment. Europe Stories is a project you're working on at the moment, where you went out and talked to young Europeans. You did, as far as I can see, hundreds of interviews and did loads of surveys. What was the inspiration behind this project?
1: It started out worrying that Europe had lost the plot. So I wanted to find out what young Europeans actually wanted Europe to do, and specifically the EU to do. And by the way, I didn't do hundreds of interviews myself. It was this amazing team of fantastic, as you remember, graduate students at Oxford from all over Europe. And what emerged was really interesting. Whereas for my generation and older generations and probably yours, there was a formative moment like Second World War or 1989. For this generation, there's a formative experience. And that experience is freedom of movement. And that came through all the interviews, it came through all the polling. And there's an amazing opinion poll result, which is that a lot of people think the EU wouldn't be worth having if we didn't have freedom to travel, work, study and live in other European countries.
0: Do you think Ukraine might end up being a formative moment for some people of that generation now? So that's such an interesting question, Alan, because
1: actually that's exactly what one of our team said to me the other day, maybe this is our formative moment. To be honest with you, I mean, it obviously depends how long the war goes on, how big its impact is. But as it looks today, where after all, it hasn't sort of massively impacted, let alone violently, most Europeans' lives, I slightly doubt it. I think it'll be a formative moment for people in Central and Eastern Europe but I'm not so persuaded it'll be a pan-European formative moment. And that's potentially
0: problematic, I imagine, isn't it?
1: Well, one of the many problems I think Europe has is that we don't have the shared experiences. And, you know, as we now see in what is quite clearly a, a kind of, I would say, north-east versus west-south divide on Ukraine. Passion from everywhere, from the Nordics, the Baltics, Poland, Slovakia, you name it, about Ukraine. This is the most important thing we must hang in there. And a very different reaction if you look at public opinion in Spain or Italy or France.
0: I mean, it's very easy to talk about young Europeans, but of course there are, there are young Europeans and young Europeans. And and for where I sit, one of the really interesting sort of electoral issues in Europe at the moment is, compared to the UK at least, the relatively high levels of support for populist radical right parties in some EU countries. So I think 49% of the 25 to 34 year olds who voted, voted Le Pen in the second round of the French election. Why do we think that's the case? Why, why do we get that difference?
1: I mean, first of all, it's obviously true, we have this kind of complacent assumption that the younger, the more quote unquote, pro European, right? And as you said, it's clearly not the case. On the contrary, for Macron, it was almost the older, the more likely they were to vote for Macron. It's a reverse age distribution. And I think, well, I think there are two answers. First of all, Europe isn't working for them. You know, many of them are having huge difficulty finding jobs. They expect their standard of living may be worse than their parents, rather better. The second thing is, I've just finished a a, a history of contemporary Europe. And one of the things you see is that for all previous generations since 1945, you've been in the worst place in the past. You want to get a better place and the better place is Europe, right? I mean, that's the familiar shape. It's like a Nike tick going upwards from a bad past. And suddenly you have generation for whom the opposite is true, right? In Southern Europe during the Eurozone crisis, you know, you remember a better time, and now things have got worse, and hey, Europe is part of the problem. So I think that's a large part of the explanation, which is why this is not about the EU telling its story better, which is a complacent assumption in the European institutions. It's about the, are you having a better story to tell, i.e. delivering.
0: On the book itself, I mean, one of, one of the remarkable things about you is on the one hand, you're a very well-known historian. On the other hand, notably through your newspaper columns, you're very much rooted in the present and writing about things that are happening sort of as we speak. Do we think having that historical view makes you think differently about present crises to other people. How does working on this book, for instance, shape the way you look at what Ukraine might mean and whether it's a historical turning point or not?
1: To state the obvious, you know, the past is one of the few things we really know. So it helps to know what happens in the past and to detect patterns. I mean, just to give you one example, I, of course, started out working on Central and Eastern Europe, when it was still part of the Soviet bloc, behind the Curtain, And many people had a, a Sovietological, a political science paradigm in which there was going to be in-system change, but there wasn't going to be change of system. I, from the start, you know, going there as a young guy and just taking a look, but also having studied history, saw this was an empire, and it was an empire in decay. Therefore, it follows as the night the day that empires that are in decay one day are going to fall. Um, we don't know when. We couldn't know that it was going to happen in nineteen eighty nine, but, but we could see the trend. Similarly, you know, much more mean example: Putin and Ukraine. Informed by history, we should have realized that the last really big empire in European history, namely the Soviet Russian Empire, you know, a land empire that's grown over centuries collapses with hardly a shot fired in anger in just three years, hey, there's going to be probably a violent reaction sooner or later. And that was greatest. It wasn't an expansion of NATO or anything like that. It was not anticipating and preparing for what history should have taught us would be the likely reaction from imperial power, colonial power, which has lost its whole empire in just three years. Hence, you know,
0: 2008
1: and then particularly 2014, we should really have have woken up.
0: Yeah, interesting. Now, I mean, I should say, actually, I should acknowledge here on on the podcast that your column back in in The Independent, back in the time that the wall was falling, was one of the things that persuaded me that this was a field I wanted to work in. So thank you very much for that. Really fantastic pieces. Just, you've written quite a lot recently about uh, Emmanuel Macron. Back in April, you described him as the only major leader with the vision, ambition, and experience to make the EU a foreign and security policy superpower. Are you still so optimistic about him, following A, his rather patchy record of Ukraine, and B, the elections, and particularly the legislative elections, which weakened him?
1: Funnily enough, I literally came back from Paris yesterday. And, you know, I'm, he may still have ambition, ability and experience, but does he have the political base to do it? Because I mean, the, the the politics in France are absolutely dire. And while foreign policy is is a presidential prerogative in the Fifth Republic system, nonetheless, if he's got these massive problems at home, so that I think that domestically he's actually created a problem for himself in building this big liberal centre. But on either side, you have populist extremes of left and right and, and a Marine Le Pen who's working, doing everything she can to make the National Front now, Rassemblement National, what the Germans call Salon fake, acceptable in the Salon, I mean, into mainstream politics. So I really, I mean, I think he's going to have his hands so full with his domestic political problems. Nonetheless, he is one of the very few European leaders, compare and contrast Olaf Scholz, who actually tries to think strategically. I don't think his idea of a European political community gathering all the would-be member states, Norway, Switzerland, the UK, in one European political community around the EU, I don't think that's actually going to go anywhere much. But at least he's trying to think
0: strategically. Okay. And why do you say that about the European political community?
1: Because it's trying to do too much in one institution. I mean, well, point number one is what Europe really needs yet another institution, yet another acronym, yet another set of meetings. You know, <laughs> As you, I think, know, Anna, Madeleine Albright, when she was Secretary of State, had her staff draw up a diagram of all the different overlapping inst- institutions and acronyms in Europe, and they called it the Euromess. <laughs> so do you want to add still more to the Euromess? But m- more importantly, It's trying to gather too many different kinds of states. So the candidate countries, and I've seen their reaction at first hand, will always worry that this is an alternative to EU membership. So they will go through it very gingerly and skeptically. And the fact that Macron referred back to Francois Mitterrand's project of a European confederation, if you remember, at the end of the Cold War, which actually was intended as an alternative to EU Judgment. They probably will go along with it, because anything that gets you a bit closer to the EU is good. But not with great, and you know, Zelensky has made it perfectly clear, what matters is the path to EU membership. Norway and Switzerland may or may not, but they'll regard it as a talking shop. And then you come to Britain, and I, you know, if, if you think of the mood Britain is in at the moment, with this sort of pretty fragile post-Brexit amor-prop, a French invitation to join what might be seen as a country cousins tea party, two or three times a year in Brussels with North Macedonia and Moldova, I don't think is going to be very warmly received. <laughs> Interesting.
0: Just, I mean, just on macro. Actually, one of the things that that I, I was reminded of when you were speaking was there was. A, I don't know if you ever saw it. There was a a wonderful essay by Hans Kudnani about why the cent the liberal centre is getting it wrong in its fight against populism, and his argument was. The centre-left and centre-right, if they really want to fight populism, need to argue amongst themselves and not make common cause, because it's only when you get that undifferentiated blob of liberalism in the middle that it really strengthens the extremes. Now, obviously, Hans put it a lot better than I just did. But do you think there's some truth in that, that actually, if you try and blur the distinction between centre-left and centre-right, and let's face it, there are real differences of economic and political principle there, it almost makes it an easier target for the extremes?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, you know, we could almost say QED, look at what's happened in France, because that is exactly what happened in France. Macron killed the left and right and created the big liberal centre. Look what happens. And by the way, we've seen it in Germany too, when you have a grand coalition in Germany, that strengthens the extremes again, that that really helped AFD. So I think politically, that's true. But I just qualify it in one respect, and which is Nonetheless, I think that it's really important that centrist parties or mainstream parties recognise that they stand together on some liberal essentials. That's also important, but with the fundamental point, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's a very dangerous way to go. The other thing, of course, the other mistake, the many, in my book, I have quite a lot about the mistakes that liberals like me made, liberal Europeans, and another one is to divorce liberalism from the nation. So the liberals were always talking about Europe and the UN and the international community, and we left the nation to the right. And what's really interesting about Zelensky is he's put those two things back together. It's the defence of liberal democracy and the defence of the nation.
0: Would it be fair to say that to date, you've been somewhat underwhelmed by Olaf Scholz? I mean, traditionally, European integration had the Franco-German motor, it looks a bit more Franco than German at the moment.
1: It would be possibly verging on an understatement to say that I've been underwhelmed by Olaf Scholz. I've been really disappointed because I thought he was a good candidate. You know, he's had the misfortune to come straight into the largest war in Europe since 1945. There are people who are good at peace and there are people who are good at war and there are relatively few who are good at both. So Zelensky was a Pretty hopeless peacetime president, but he's a great wartime leader. Uh, Schultz, I think, actually would be a first-rate peacetime chancellor, but he just is not good at responding to war. He doesn't realise that you have to use language in a different way, that you have to be take big decisions and big risks to move faster. You know, he's moving in this patient, evolutionary, incremental managerial way, which is great for managing the German economy, but not great for pushing back Putin in, in Ukraine. Interestingly, the guy who, who turned out to have been good at both is Mario Draghi, which is fascinating. Uh, Draghi has understood what I think Scholz hasn't got or managed to respond to, namely that you do have to act and speak differently in war.
0: But on on the war, and I mean, we're we're four months on now from the Russian invasion. Have you been broadly reassured by the EU's response?
1: I think there's far too much self-congratulation.
0: It's a huge failure that
1: Putin felt able to risk starting, you know, major invasion of a neighbouring sovereign country. That's a huge European and Western failure in the first place. Secondly, we actually haven't sent in enough weapons and ammunition fast enough to enable the Ukrainians to push back the invading forces, as, we, as we've just seen again in Luhansk. Thirdly, the sanctions, although they've been big, turn out to be quite survivable by the Putin regime, because we're still paying, I mean, Germany alone is still paying somewhere around a billion euros a week for Russian fossil fuel energy. And those prices have gone through the roof, and therefore they're compensating, and Putin managed to sanction-proof his economy. So I don't think we should be congratulating ourselves at all. And by the way, I think the divisions are beginning to show in the United States and in Europe. And I'm I'm really quite worried that if Putin gets the Donetsk, as well as Luhansk, the two oblasts, and the land bridge to Crimea, which he has, and then stops and says, let's have a ceasefire, let's talk about peace. If we settle for that, he will plausibly be able to claim a victory. And that sets a terrible precedent.
0: Do you think Europeans should be willing to pay a high economic cost in order to make sure that that doesn't happen? I mean, that's one of the problems, isn't it, that this war coincides with, I mean, it's partly caused, but it partly coincides with this cost of living crisis, which makes things far, far more problematic. I mean, do you, do you see solidarity holding as prices rise and the cost of living crisis gets worse into the autumn? I'm awfully afraid it won't. I mean, let, let, let's let be clear, the
1: the popular solidarity has been immense. I mean, like you, I had the experience the other day of going on question time, which was fascinating. And we were talking about Ukraine for 40 minutes. And then they said, "Shall we talk about COVID? And the whole audience shouted back, no, keep talking about Ukraine. It was amazing. And so, and you know, the, the hospitality to refugees, the outpouring, it's been amazing. In that sense, it has been a great pan-European moment, but it's already fading. And, hey, if we have inflation above 10%, you know, petrol prices continue to go up. We go into a recession. There may be another refugee crisis because of the impact of the food shortages on Middle East and Africa. You know, will it hold? I doubt it very much.
0: Yeah, I saw that horrible tweet from Timothy Snyder the other day talking about how Putin intends to starve Asia and Africa as a way of putting pressure on Europe to relax sanctions. I mean, there's a grisly game being played out here.
1: Which is why, by the way, I think we should have gone bigger, faster. I think we should have done, I mean, I was for the oil and gas embargo at the start, and incredibly difficult to do, and just as much military support as possible. At the beginning of the war, that could have really rocked him back on his heels.
0: Now, clearly, the re-election of Viktor Orban has not done wonders for EU solidarity. And I suppose it's another example of learning from our mistakes. Do you think it's now time to take a more muscular approach to Orban? And if so, what would that look like?
1: I think this is such a fascinating story because Viktor Orban has effectively destroyed democracy in Hungary with the help of billions of euros of EU funds from the pockets of West European taxpayers. It's not that he's destroyed democracy and got all the money. It's the money has helped him to destroy the democracy because it both stabilised the economy and given him massive patronage funds which the central government can use to reward friendly oligarchs, friendly mayors, friendly you know, supportive voters and so on. I was actually in Hungary at the beginning of April for the last election. This was no longer a free and fair election. It was technically a free election, but definitely not a fair election. Total control of the media landscape, this in a full member state of the EU. And of course he then able to hold the EU absolutely hostage over further rounds of sanctions on Russia. So conclusion, the mistake was not the big Eastern enlargement, 2004, 2007. The mistake was not to do enough deepening as we widened. In two respects, the linkage between the Europe of money and the Europe of values. So you couldn't have done what Orban did at home. And I would say more QMV, less
0: unanimity. It seems likely that Ukraine is not going to become a member for a decade, at least, as Macron says. I mean, what could the EU do to ease that transition? Is there a more flexible approach it can take to Ukraine? And if so, should it take that sort of approach? Absolutely, it should. Flexible, but that doesn't mean
1: loose in the way, for example, it got loose for Bulgaria and Romania in 2007. Clearly, they can't just have a huge long shopping list of the total acquis communautaire. You have to tick all 500 boxes before in 20 years time, you're let in, that's not gonna work. You know, North Macedonia waiting 17 years. So I've actually just been in Brussels talking to people about this. And as, as you know, there's some really interesting ideas about staged accession. There's a proposal from the European Stability Initiative, Gerard Knaus, very creative proposal about having the first big staging post being access to the single market. And people in Brussels were saying, you can even be more granular than that. You can have earlier access to certain parts of the singular market. And by the way, suddenly it turns out that the four freedoms are not theologically and legally indivisible, that it's actually possible if you want to, political will. Then, of course, you have pre-accession funds, you have Connect, you know, for transport and infrastructure and communication funds, and then some sort of, this is a bit of the European political community idea that I like, some sort of early participation in some sort of deliberations with the EU 27 in Brussels. That, for me, becomes a much more attractive that package, where there are a series of milestones, you do this, you get that,
0: you do that, you get this. And that's, I think, the way we should be thinking. And of course, there's a track record of that, isn't there? And that the Central and East European states were involved in some decision making, or at least in some meetings around the time of the convention prior to having become full member states, as those, those lines can be blurred a little bit, that you can at least give people a seat at some tables.
1: Absolutely. But I think that the single market one is particularly attractive, because if you think about it, Ukraine, you've already got visa-free travel if you get all or most of the single market in say, I mean, the time frame that was suggested to me in Brussels as not unrealistic was three to five years.
0: So I have to say, I do wonder a little bit, particularly given what's happened in some other particularly Baltic states, whether a brain drain might be, become an issue for Ukraine under those circumstances.
1: I think it already is. Yeah, no, and sure. Yeah. And for Moldova, I think, it's, I think it's a huge issue, but at least it gives an incentive for them to reform. And there's a lot of reform needed. And it also gives an incentive to us.
0: No, absolutely. And finally, I can't let you go without touching on Brexit. Today, Today, as we record, is the day that Keir Starmer is making his first major speech, I think, on Brexit. And there is some tentative evidence in the opinion polling that there's been an increase in the number of voters who think Brexit has caused economic damage. So let me ask you a rather odd question then in that context, which is if you were writing Starmer's speech for this evening, what would you get him to say? Well, first of all, I would not build the entire
1: speech around the slogan, make Brexit work, which suggests that Brexit was a perfectly good idea. It's just that the Johnson government hasn't made it work properly, which is clearly not the case. And as you say, it's not just the polling evidence. We are now beginning, aren't we, to get some hard economic evidence about the costs that were always foreseen, OBR and so on. We're now getting the hard evidence on that. So I think that's a terrible slogan. And it seems to me Labour is simply running scared of losing the Leave voters in the Red Wall Sea, which they're just getting back, right? The second thing I would say is I can totally understand why the politics are not there for an agenda of rejoining customs union, single market, let alone EU. I totally understand that. Public opinion may be there in five years' time or eight years' time towards the end of the 2020s, but they're not there now. So I understand that. What I most miss in, in the speech, which actually I've had a sneak preview of, is any positive message about Europe as a whole. This is a speech entirely And solely for the British audience, making solely British arguments. And if he, you know, when he becomes prime minister, when and if he becomes prime minister, is going to have a kind of reset with the EU, which is clearly what we need, then he's got to start speaking European. He's got to start speaking to people the other side of the channel and saying, I understand, I admire what you're doing. We're part of a larger European project. We're just going to be part of it in a different way. And that at the moment is just totally lacking as far as I can see from the way Labour, maybe with a few exceptions, is speaking about this as it is from the way Boris Johnson or Liz Truss are talking about
0: it. So you're not sort of prepared to be excited by this speech?
1: I am disappointed. I think there would have been a way of being cautious about your electorate and you know, not making over-committing, but doing it, framing it in a different way. My honest view, Anand, is that we're all so sick and tired of talking about Brexit that we actually need to frame it in a different way. Something like cross-channel relations, relations between the UK and the EU. You know, choose your language, but not endlessly talking about Brexit and then what the future cross-channel relationship is going to be.
0: And finally, are you optimistic about the future of Europe? There's a question. (laughs)
1: Well, that's a question I pose at the end of my book. And my answer, I'm afraid, is with Antonio Gramsci pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Because I think, on a sober analysis, if you look at all the problems we have in Europe, and by the way, European orders have never lasted forever, right? And this one, you know, think about it, will have, I mean, in 20. 27, the EU will be 70 years old. It's no young polity. And if you look at not only the internal problems we have, but the world around us, from Russia to China to the state of the Middle East and Africa, to the prospect of a Trump victory in 2024, it's very hard to be optimistic. But if I can end on this, Vaclav Havel had a wonderful distinction between optimism and hope. Havel said, optimism is the belief that things will get better. Hope is the belief that there are things worth fighting for. And in that sense, I'm, I'm hopeful, if not optimistic.
0: Well, that strikes me as an ideal note on which to end. Tim, I could have kept talking to you for ages, but I know you've got better things to be doing. But thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak to me today. That was utterly fascinating. I said utterly fascinating. I didn't mean to say it. Now everyone will laugh at me because I say it too much apparently. Really enjoyed it, Andrew.